Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Uh, Good evening, uh, all, and welcome to Prospect's Election Debate 2017, which is also a special edition of our Headspace podcast. It was an election that was always going to be tempting for Theresa May to call, but she plays her cards so close to her chest that when she did, everyone was pretty surprised. And at first it looked like a real masterstroke, but things, as it's got closer to polling day, have started to look a bit more worrying from the Prime Minister's point of view. Uh, And I've assembled three expert panellists here who've fretted about different aspects of uh, where things are heading. Matthew Paris is a former MP and now a Times columnist who's written that he expects his own Tory tribe to come out firmly on top, but feels distinctly uneasy about what they might do next. Nick Cohen, a columnist at The Observer, is a man of the left, but now spends uh, much time railing against what he regards as the moral collapse of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, which he worries is headed for calamity, almost regardless of the result, I think. And Meg Russell, who's Professor of Politics at UCL and Director of its Constitution Unit, is, I suppose, professionally charged with worrying about the state of the ground rules of politics. So lots to worry about, uh, with uh, 36 hours to go until the voting uh, begins. Um, And so... Matthew, thanks a lot for coming. And I wonder if I could ask you to kick us off with a few words um, about the election and the Tory side of things, uh, especially. Uh, yes, th- thank, thank you, Tom. Well, this has been a stupid election, and uh, I don't think the, the British electorate like stupid elections. And I don't think they like opportunistic elections. And this has been an opportunistic election. And it's seen uh, Theresa May start with the reputation for being uh, clear, firm, resolved, perhaps rather quiet, but with an an iron will and someone who knew where she was going. And it ends with her seeming indecisive, uh, unable to make up her mind about things, willing to do U-turns at every every turn, and quite close sometimes to, to panic. The Conservative Party are going to win it, because the alternative is, in my opinion, completely unthinkable. But they're going to win it with a leader who has been winged. She has a broken wing now, and no majority, not even 150 or 200, will mend the broken wing. She has been humiliated um, in the media, uh, humiliated in the eyes of a lot of the electorate, and uh, humiliated in the eyes of 
all the prospective Conservative parliamentary candidates, uh, many of whom will be members of Parliament in a few days' time, so that the new Parliament that assembles will assemble under the strong and stable leadership of, of Theresa May, but I think in a much more uncertain mood than if she had just carried on as she was. She could have called another election. The best time to do it would have been to do it immediately after assuming the leadership of the party. That Everyone would have understood that was a good reason, good time to call an election, that she needed the endorsement of the electorate. She could have done it after the Supreme Court said that Parliament's view was needed, Parliament's support was needed, in which case she could quite reasonably have said, in that case, we, we need a new Parliament to take that view. That Those, I think, would have been reasons that the electorate would have understood. But to do it suddenly now, after Article 50 has been triggered anyway, just looks opportunistic. And I believe was. I, I believe her, or believed her, when she said she did not want to call another general election. She was not kind of cunningly giggling down her sleeve and thinking, ha, 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 I am going to call another general election. She really didn't want to call one, and she wavered. She changed her mind. The The prospect of a huge majority just looked too tempting. Obviously, the reasons she gave were completely spurious. <laughs> there was no serious opposition that the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats and the SNP were able to put up in Parliament against the continuing Brexit negotiations. She didn't need uh, that. And, and I, I think that she has been rumbled. I'm sorry, because I, I know her a little bit. I personally like her. Uh, she isn't the, the cold person that people think. She's just quite shy and quite reserved. I like the fact that she doesn't have a parliamentary gang, that she doesn't like playing games. I, I, I like the fact that she's interested beyond the leafy parts of England, in those parts of England and Wales, that, that are just about managing. It's not, not a bad phrase. I know the East Midlands very well. It's where I, I live. And that's where she's popular. She's enormously popular in Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire, and she's going to have a very good result there. I also think she's, if not a brilliant original thinker, a person with an extremely good intellect, She's very conscientious. She never goes into anything without really understanding it and having mugged up all the figures beforehand. And I'm not quite sure if she would ever have been a great prime minister, but I think uh, she could have been, uh, could perhaps uh, still be a, a very competent prime minister. And I'm sorry to see her wreck her reputation in the way that I believe it has been wrecked. And I think it has been comprehensively wrecked. Uh, look at the U-turns that she made. The first one, of course, was the U-turn from being a Remainer uh, to being a Lever, and she still hasn't explained that to anyone's uh, satisfaction. I, I think she could, if she were honest. If she were honest, what would you say? You would say, yes, I did think that it was better for Britain to stay in the European Union, and actually I still think that, but the British public have taken a different view, and if it's what people want, we just have to negotiate the best terms we can, and I'm confident that we can negotiate good terms, and the earth will continue in its orbit. That's what she should have said, because it would have been true, but she didn't. Uh, then she changed her mind about whether or not to call an election, uh, a huge U-turn, given the, uh, the, the categorical way in which she had said she wouldn't, 
then she changed her mind about a key element in the manifesto, actually a promise I rather rather uh, agreed with about um, making people, if they were rich, pay for their own uh, social care and, until they were down to the last 100,000. But she, she panicked on that and, 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 and you turned. Then there, of course, earlier there was the panic uh, about the national insurance in, in the budget. So she's not looking as decisive as uh, she had. She's looking shaky and flaky. And I think that she'll emerge from this general election with a majority of 60 or 70. I think she's going to do absolutely fine. Less than 40, I think, would be a serious uh, defeat, really. Uh, but but more, more than 60 or 70 will look like a, a, a comfortable majority, and it is. But not so much in command, not so much in the saddle as she was before. I'm sure when we come to questions, we can talk about what, what might then happen, but I'll I'll pause at that point and, and listen to what the others have to say. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Nick, um, over to you. How do you think things are looking for this election in general and maybe on the on the Labour side uh, and perhaps the Liberal Democrats in particular? Well, um, it's, it's a bit difficult timing, this, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I, uh, as I was walking down the road here, I had a, I had a call from an editor of The Spectator a few doors along the... Uh, this is, this is like some, some Arabian city where we have a street for a thousand uh, political magazines. Uh, and, he was, and he was going, Nick, Nick, for goodness sake, we haven't got anything about Labour in the magazine. And I said, well, we don't know the result. Yeah, it's going to be quite difficult. The Labour Party is in, in the strangest position I, I've ever seen a political party. Like with Brexit, Matthew was talking about Theresa May not believing in, in, in Brexit, but, uh, but going ahead and doing it problem of having a plebiscite in a parliamentary system. Labour also have the problems of a plebiscite, a vote of all its members, in a parliamentary system where the majority of its MPs have opposed a leader on it, the plebiscite has opposed a leader on the parliamentary party. The majority of its MPs don't support, in fact 172 of them passed the motion of no confidence in him. So you've got 172 Labour MPs, all of whom were automatically reselected as soon as May called an election. Um, Labour candidates, assuming Labour might take some seats, I mean, who knows, they might do in London, uh, um, you never know, seems unlikely. Labour candidates, again, uh, uh, the Corbyn left, whatever you want to call them, were completely frozen out by the Labour Party machine. And so they are, if you like, mainstream Labour. So you have all these Labour candidates standing, and MPs standing for re-election, the majority of whom do not believe in their leader. Um, nevertheless, if you vote for them, it will be taken by the leadership as an endorsement of them. <coughs> they were saying right at the start, when it looked like it could be a Tory landslide, I don't think it will be now, but they were saying at the start of, start of if uh, Corbyn, or Jeremy as they insist on calling him in this rather familiar way, if Jeremy gets 30% of the vote, what Ed Miliband got, he can stay. So what happens next in the Labour Party uh, will very much depend on how well Labour does. Uh, I'm afraid, um, I, I don't know, I suspect left-wing hopes have been raised only to be dashed. Um, I genuinely don't believe people like YouGov. I think they're destroying their reputation in this election. I don't believe it's neck and neck or we're heading for a hung parliament. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. You know, I didn't think Donald Trump would win in America. That, that to me seems impossible. Um, but, 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 but there you go. If you talk to 
Labour politicians, Labour canvassers, particularly in the north, where, where there are seats for the Tories to win, they don't think anything much has changed. They don't see a Corbyn surge. They see a Corbyn curse. But um, the future of the Labour Party will depend very much on what percentage of the vote it gets and how many MPs it gets because the Corbyn left will then use that to justify remaining in, in power. Now, in some ways, I don't even want to cover this story. Uh, I'm so bored of it. And compared with all, all, all there is to write about in the world, and there, there, there is an embarrassment of riches, the, uh, the Chinese curse, may, may you live in interesting times, is not a curse for journalists at all, quite the contrary. Uh, so to write about, and of a party that is not going to win an election, it's out of power for another five years, <coughs> possibly, who knows, for another ten Going into my new shy, which I can do, my new shy of how today's far left are a hopeless far left. They're not like proper far lefts of you know when I was a lad, like militants <laughs> who really knew how to pack a meeting. You know who would stay there till midnight and beyond and drive everyone else insane so they could get their motions passed. They just click <laughs> activists. So they're not going to control the Labour Party conference. They're not going to get their motions through to make John McDonald stand. And I think, do I really want to spend the next year or two years writing about it? But that is what is likely to happen. Whatever the result, even if Labour were reduced to, I don't know, 1931 levels of support of about 60-odd MPs, <coughs> Corbyn was not going to stand down unless he was assured of passing on to someone in the, in the faith for the simple reason that he believes in this, and so does John MacDonald, and so does Diane Abbott, and so does Seamus Milne, you know. They believe in their politics, whether you agree with them or not, in the same way that the Tory right wing believed in their politics for all the years when banging on about Europe seemed, you know, an eccentric thing to do. And they want to cling on, cling on to power. So we will then, we then just have to see what happens. Some Labour politicians assure me that if it's a bad result, I mean a really bad result, there will be a challenge within days. Um, because, to get back to what matters for a moment because they want it over in the summer. Uh, they think it's very important that come September, October, after the German elections at the end of September, we at last have a competent opposition, an opposition front bench that can hold May and Johnson to account as the Brexit negotiations begin in earnest. Whether you can believe them or not is another matter. You have to wait until a defeat happens and sense, and sense the mood. Um, but... The Labour Party story, I think, will, um, will just go on and on and on, and it will be quite a dismal story for a very long time. And I think, I suspect, I could be wrong, that, that the people who are getting exuberant looking at the polls or, or, or living within, uh, within their own bubble on Twitter and saying, well, everyone I know is supporting Corbyn. Everyone I know is voting Labour. My parents, who were very strongly against Mrs. Faction in the 1980s, had enough self-knowledge to cut out uh, a little pocket cartoon, Matt-style cartoon, from the front page of The Guardian. We had it stuck on our fridge at home. And it was a picture of a middle-class, educated, leftish couple, very much like my mother and father, staring with horror at the TV as Margaret Faction went on to yet another landslide victory. And the wife turned to the husband saying... We must move in very small circles, darling. No one we know would dream of voting for her. And uh, I suspect, particularly in the North, that, that, that may well be true of Corbyn too. 
Thank you very much indeed, um, Nick. Now, um, Meg, um, how do you think the next few years are looking? Um, uh, there's still a lot that's uncertain, but there's some things that are going to be happening, particularly in Parliament, aren't there? Either way, yeah, whether it's a big majority or a small one. Well, I come at this primarily as a Parliament watcher. Um, I think that we're at risk of having a dangerous agree- degree of agreement on this on this panel. Um, <laughs> I just put the current issue of Prospect down. Um, Nick and I both had articles in there, and I was very struck by Nick's opening line in his article, which was that all opinion pieces boil down to two headlines. It's the end of the world as we know it, or don't get carried away. Um, I was surprised that he turned out to be in the first of those camps at the end of his article, and my role in my article was clearly to be in the other camp. Um, I'm going to return to my opening paragraph, um, just to give this context. Um, I said, many assume that a sharp increase in the number of Conservative MPs on 8th of June will give the Prime Minister far greater power to govern unimpeded. Indeed, the hope of an enhanced personal mandate is what inspired Theresa May's snap election. The traditional expectation in Britain is, after all, that a government with a comfortable Commons majority can push through more or less whatever policy it pleases. As she made as she made her surprise statement, May stressed the need to unite Westminster behind her. So will this strategy work? Not necessarily. Well, clearly, that wasn't written long ago, and a lot has changed since. One of the things which has changed is that the presumption that there will be a Conservative majority um, absolutely has gone. We've been hearing about hung parliaments and so on, and Labour may be going up in numbers of seats. Um, I imagine we might come on and talk about the polls a bit. Um, I'm not a sophologist, um, and I think... Basically, we're now in such an uncertain world that anybody who makes firm predictions doesn't know as much about politics as they'd like to think they do. Um, But I think we're probably in agreement on this panel that the hung parliament scenario seems pretty implausible. Um, First of all, it doesn't seem to be tallying with with what Labour activists are hearing on the ground. And secondly, there's a key fundamental um, is the collapse of the UKIP vote, which massively favours the Conservatives. So there was an analysis in the Telegraph um, after the local elections, pointing out that there are 45 Labour seats um, where the size of the UKIP vote last time is substantially higher than the difference between Labour and the Conservatives. And if two-thirds of uh, UKIP voters turned Conservative, those seats would all go Conservative, which would leave the Conservatives on 375 and Labour on 184. That's if no Labour votes move, there is no dip thanks to Corbyn, and if there is going to be a bounce thanks to Corbyn, it's got to be a pretty big bounce to overcome that basic, um, that basic problem. So my working assumption also is that uh, the Conservatives will have a majority, and it might be an increased majority. It might even be quite a big one. But the more important change, um, since I wrote my Don't Get Carried Away piece, um, was that I was saying Theresa May's... Um, hegemony can't be assumed post-election, even if she has a large majority, when we were all assuming she was going to have a smooth campaign. And she patently hasn't had a smooth campaign. In some ways, in fact, the campaign itself has demonstrated some of the kind of features of the British political system that I touched on in my piece. So fundamentally, um, the old-fashioned picture of British politics holds that we have an overweening single-party majority executive That was always questionable, and it's been becoming increasingly out of date. I think that while the British people tend to like strong government, 
We nonetheless don't like unchecked power. The checks in the British system have always been political, not legal. They include our opinionated um, and confident media, a vibrant pressure group culture, and they've always crucially included the dynamics, dynamics within the governing party itself through views being expressed in private, but also increasingly in recent years in public in Parliament. So the prediction in my piece was that an overconfident Theresa May would find that some of her policies unraveled in Parliament under pressures for an emboldened Conservative backbench, emboldened by the fact that a larger majority actually makes it easier to voice your, to voice your doubts, and nobody likes um, a, an unchallenged executive. What I didn't predict, obviously, was that her policies were going to start to unravel during the campaign <laughs> itself. I might have uh, thought that something like social care was going to come under pressure in Parliament. I never expected to see a U-turn on a manifesto policy within days in the middle of a campaign. I think that's probably unprecedented. And one of the things I study is the House of Lords, and of course manifestos are there to see off the House of Lords, but if they can fall apart during the campaign, I'm not sure that that holds much water. Um, so the things that Matthew has referred to, including that one, um, have been a huge blow to the Prime Minister's credibility during the campaign. Um, if she's returned with a majority, as he's indicated, she looks to be not emboldened, but significantly weakened at the start of the new parliament. So whatever predictions I made uh, for trouble ahead will maybe prove to be modest. There are clearly lots of areas where Conservative policy could get um, a Conservative Party could get fractious over policy. Um, but one of the biggest questions, of course, has to be over what it means for Brexit. Um, holding an election, um, rather than or, or as well as necessarily strengthening the Prime Minister on Brexit, has various clear effects. First, it sends MPs out onto the doorsteps where they have to listen to people, have a lot of contact with voters, and also need to express their own personal views. On Brexit, it's worth bearing in mind um, that there were around 80, there are estimated around 80 Conservative constituencies which were pro-Remain, and most of the MPs in those constituencies were themselves pro-Remain. At the very least, they're going to be sceptical about a hard Brexit. Secondly, um, the election means that MPs now are not looking at re-election in three years' time. They've got a whole five years, and the, um, the negotiations are going to be well out of the way by the time they face the electorate again, which gives them a degree of new freedom. And in the meantime, if the negotiations don't go the way that Theresa May was hoping, if Parliament gives her a hard time, she's lost the ultimate threat of calling an early election, I think. She's done it once, she can't do it again. The electorate wouldn't bear it, and she'd probably mm. be frightened of the potential consequences. So in all of these ways, her backbenchers are significantly strengthened against her, and this makes her very dependent on Parliament. In the context of Brexit, these problems seem particularly acute because her rhetoric to date has been, trust me, I'm tough, I know what I'm doing. Um, there is a plan, but I'm keeping it to myself. Parliament should keep its nose out. Parliament's growing impatience with this kind of attitude was one of the things that helped spark the election in the first place. But what's happened during the campaign is likely to have heightened rather than calmed Parliament's concerns. It's going to be watching over the negotiations very carefully and it's going to look with even greater concern than it otherwise would have done at the so-called Great Repeal Bill. 
I haven't said anything very much about the Lords, which is something we might get into. That's mostly about the Commons. But let me end on another uh, more political theme. Um, I'm starting to wonder um, whether the 2017 Parliament might actually turn out to look a bit like the 1992 Parliament, whether Theresa May might actually turn into John Major, a Prime Minister who inherited from a Conservative predecessor, started high, gained a fresh mandate, but whose credibility rapidly slipped, who struggled with managing a fractious parliamentary party, particularly on Europe. But Major actually started the 1992 Parliament on a relative high, having won somewhat unexpectedly. Theresa May seems set to do the reverse. But the winners, of course, post-1992 were Labour, who went on to, to lead increasingly in the polls from a few months after the election, heading up to the 1997 landslide. This suggests to me that there's a huge potential opportunity here for a strong opposition party, but we don't actually have one. Um, we're going to see about the Corbyn bounce, but the stuff that Nick is talking about matters enormously here, the future of Labour. Even after a presumed defeat, there's a potential big opportunity for the Labour Party, but whether it's going to be able to take it, I suspect we all doubt. Let's um, thank you very much, uh, Meg, and, and, and let's um, start on, uh, blow on to Labour, I think, is, 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 is the na natural next thing. Matthew. I just wanted to ask you, Nick, uh, what I, and more famously you, got wrong uh, about Jeremy Corbyn. I, at the start of this campaign, couldn't imagine him ever making a good speech, couldn't imagine him being focused and, and disciplined, C couldn't imagine him relaxed and, and at ease, and sounding not ju just impassioned, but uh, quite disciplinedly impassioned. What, what has changed? This, this man appears to have, have an, a, a, an amazing, for he's my age, for a man of his age, an amazing ability to learn on the stump. I famously got it wrong. Um, nothing's changed at all, Matthew. He's, he's, he's very good at campaigning. Uh, and in fact, he has been campaigning pretty much continuously at hustings like on TV, full Labour leadership for two years, addressing meetings. And he's also playing to an audience, uh, playing to an audience that wants to like him and wants and wants to hear from him, and an audience which just doesn't just include um, uh, his natural supporters, but includes a wide range of people in Britain who've just decided they've nowhere else to go. What do you do if you're anti-Tory in Britain at this election? In Scotland, maybe you can vote SNP, but then you have to believe in national. In England and Wales, where do you go? There isn't a viable Liberal Democrat party. Um, the Greens have been pretty much absorbed by Labour. Corbyn is far closer to the Greens than, than to the, the old mainstream Labour Party. And, you know, he's good at public speaking. He's good, he's good at campaigning, particularly, the, you know, the hustings format you have on television. He's been doing that. He, um, he, he's, been do he's been doing that for years. And uh, and you know, I'll give him credit. He 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 has done he has done well. He has done well in this electoral campaign, and the fact he has done, I think, will have political significance as well. If if he had, that will have uh, um, uh, brightened the hearts of Labour members, the selectorate, the five hundred thousand odd people who would decide whether we have the competent opposition. Meg was talking about which, you know, I agree that there are huge opportunities for. They they would be cheered by this. So even if there is a result like you expect of a conservative majority of eighty, 
or I, I, I might even go a bit higher than that. People won't come away. They'll probably remember say, well, good old Jeremy. He gave it to them. He was a good campaigner. And the fact we're now in our third Tory term and every time there's an election, the number of Tory MPs goes up rather than down, which is the normal way of history, um, that doesn't matter. And if you want... So that will make it harder for someone to challenge him and, and, and you know, build, build, build the kind of opposition front bench, I think, regardless of your party position, you ought to be looking for, given what we're going to be going through with Brexit. Well, Len, Len McCluskey prepared us, didn't he, for the, for the great victory, which would be Labour dropping 30 seats to 200. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and actually, given what I said about UKIP, he was right. Uh, that, 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 that would be uh, a gain in, in that respect, could, could depending on what the UKIP voters do. Yeah. Could still happen. D- but don't we need to rethink, I mean, if um, J- Jeremy Corbyn were to get what a lot of the opinion polls are saying, he will get 34%, 35%. We might doubt that, but if he does, that's appreciably more than Ed Miliband got or Gordon Brown got. And um, doesn't that mean that people would be right to take away the lesson that, like, clarity of definition, not worrying about whether everything's been bombed-proof by the Institute for Fiscal Studies and yeah. worrying about a kind of, you know, like, a, a sort of progressive way of doing austerity and just opposing is actually quite a popular thing to do. Worked for the Tory right and Brexit, didn't it? I mean, you know, you just stay there. Uh, you, you squat on the ground. The Tories won't stay in power forever, you could say to yourself. Uh, they clear you, and one day uh, it will be the glorious day, and, our, and, our, and the country will turn to us and our time will come. Yes, I mean, it's perfectly, that's how they think. It's a perfectly, it's, you know, if they were to get 34%, I can see how they could argue that. A, a colleague this morning was um, uh, quoting someone who had said that uh, Jeremy Corbyn now has assembled on his side a formidable coalition between the VI Leninists and the John Leninists. The the VI Leninists, um, like Seamus Milne, for instance, believe that in the thousand-year march of history, ultimate victory is inevitable. Seamus is a John Leninist as well, though, you know. (laughs) And the the John Leninists are humming Imagine to themselves, you know, woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, Imagine, and so on. It is a formidable coalition. Well, uh, look, I... for, uh, I don't quite look, I don't quite see how this works. So to go back into my sad life, which I'm desperate to escape from, to think you know it's come to this of 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 phoning up groups like Labour First and checking on constituency delegates to the October Labour conference, which I don't even want to go to. I just don't see how it works for Corbyn though, because even if he gets your thirty four percent, even if uh, you know. We do not labor. We labor does not fall below Michael Foote's level of two hundred nine and get the two hundred seats that Meg was referring to. I mean, the poor old chap is uh, is in his late sixties. He's not going. Surely, he's not going to keep going until twenty twenty two. I am. Um, uh, yeah, yeah but, you, but, you, but you don't have to be leader of the opposition. Mind you, just, nor does Jeremy Corbyn, really, when you actually look at what he does. Um, but um, but um, he hasn't got the control of the party machine to get through the rule change that would reduce the number of MPs needed to nominate a successor to 5% of the parliamentary Labour Party, which would allow a campaign group, son or daughter of Jeremy, to take over. 
So he's just going to have to stay there forever and the Parliamentary Labour Party will have to keep revolting and then he will have to go to an election and members will say, we love you, Jeremy. And people like me saying, don't call politicians by their first names. You should never call politicians by their first names. <laughs> it's Corbyn, Mr Corbyn, or you bastard. We are a free people. We do not do this. And they will keep re-electing him and it will go on until he dies and goes to the great socialist utopia in the sky or maybe somewhere warmer below. I don't know. But... <laughs> I just don't see how how his faction consolidates control of of the parliamentary Labour Party and 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 the Labour Conference and the National Executive. So we're just going to go on like the past two years. For if he doesn't go, um, it will just be you know more of the same. Um, Meg. Um one thing that people would have thought if you'd given them the story of the last two years in advance, which, as you said, wise people about politics now realise how little they know. Um, but if you'd said that the Conservative Party was going to dash off in a rather nationalist direction and go for a hard Brexit, that Labour would be um, uh, run by Jeremy Corbyn with, um, you know, uh, kind of pre-Thatcher views on the way that you run an economy and so on conventional wisdom, conventional columnists would have said there'll be a big gap in the centre and someone will fill it. Liberal Democrats are on 8% or something. What's going on there? When I teach um, British politics, one of my subjects for years has been about the decline of ideology in Britain. You know, that was just that was just assumed to be the trajectory we were on. And nobody, the students I was teaching five years ago just wouldn't have believed what's happened in the last, in the last couple of years. I'm a bit mystified that the Liberal Democrats haven't had a bigger revival. Um, during this election, I had assumed that they would be able to capitalise on the on on the forty eight percent and on the disaffected centrist Labour voters. And I don't know. It, it would be interesting to know from the journalists on the panel whether whether they think there's an extent to which that's about coverage and messages not being heard, or whether it's really a lack of sort of. Um, a lack of enthusiasm and effort on the part of the Liberal Democrats. It seemed to me there was an opportunity to be seized there as well, and it just hasn't happened. It surprised me. I do think this has been quite a, a presidential election, and the president, Tim Farron, just doesn't yeah. cut the mustard. He President so, Clegg could have done it. Yeah, maybe he could. Someone described Tim Farron as looking like a children's television presenter who'd lost his glove puppet. <laughs> and that's the... the, the He's actually quite bright, Tim Farron, but he's actually not a liberal. He's a Christian socialist, and it just comes across. Mm. Nine seats, that's all. They don't even get guaranteed questions yeah. you know, or guaranteed in Parliament guaranteed slots on the, on the BBC. Um, they're a funny party. I mean, they used to get, you know, used to be the pro-European party and yet win seats in mm. very anti-European parts of the South West and the Welsh and Scottish borders. Um, and I, I'm not sure. I'm. I, I think you know. We, I, I can. You know, we could. We, we could say everything that's wrong to him. It is a little mystifying. I, I think part of the difficulty is that the centre lies across political parties in Britain. There's no. You know, there's never been a centre party. Um, there are centrists in different political parties. Um, and on Brexit, I mean, I would have said they they should be more um, more aggressive on Brexit. But on the other hand, what's happened to Brexit? We're meant to have a Brexit election. We've barely talked about mm. it. 
the problems. I mean, and I, but partly, I suppose the problem is, as you say, that, that they haven't wanted to talk about it. I mean, it's, we're, we're now in such different political territory. It used to be possible campaigning as a Liberal Democrat or indeed as somebody from any party 20 odd years ago to have different messages in different constituencies and for nobody to particularly notice. So you could be pro-Brexit in some areas and anti-Brexit in others, and the two wouldn't meet. But with social media and 24-hour news media of a more standard kind, that just isn't going to work anymore. And they're clearly in big trouble in their heartlands in the southwest, aren't they, on I, that issue? And I suppose they're also suffering from the I mean, boring, boring point to make, um, but they're suffering from the same problem that the SDP did in terms of breaking through and... In our first-past-the-post system, they haven't rebuilt anywhere as as yet. Um, I think that, that Lib Dems are actually going to get quite a lot more votes this time than they yeah. did last time, but in the wrong places. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, this may just be a description of my own social circle, but at least half my friends are going to vote Liberal Democrat for the first time in their lives. I bet there are people in this room who are going to vote Liberal Democrat this time, all over what you might call um, the, the, the liberal metropolitan elite, there are such people, <laughs> but not where the liberal Democrats yeah. need them. In and the their West strategy country. traditionally has been has been building up support from the grassroots up, hasn't it, from local councillors and so on, getting dug in in constituencies until they have the credibility to be seen as the challenger candidate. And they haven't had time to do that. They haven't had time to recover from that's, the coalition. That, that, that's part of the problem. Meg. Everyone talks about how few MPs they had. 2015 was such a disaster when they're not in second place in many, yeah. many places where, where they need to be if they were going to move forward. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at where I live in Islington, and I thought, well, naturally, you know, it's Emily Formula, Lib Dem will be second. And then, no, I mean, the Conservatives second. You know, I mean, they did so badly. Mm. They can't do their normal thing of Lib, Lib Dems winning here, you know, and give an entirely dishonest bar chart and say... Oh, know, I've had the, I've, I live in your constituency and I've had the bar chart. They've, they've found a way. They were less than 500 votes behind Labour in 2005. And by 2015, uh, they were in third place with the Conservatives and the same, uh, or, or know, with the, double the vote. You know, the same applies across all, all kinds of seats, seats, seats where they might have a chance. Not, not everywhere. I mean, places but, like Bath, you could see them coming back, but... But, I mean, people are pretty fed up. Wages have been stuck for a long time. That's always going to matter more to most people than the European Union, I'd I'd suggest. And the Liberal Democrats, maybe, if people are fed up, aren't in a position to put themselves forward as a party of change or of discontent because they're in government too recently. Do you think, not think? Um, uh, (laughs) Yes, well, uh, that's true. But, I mean, I, I would go just back to the point of... In the first past the post system, they've got nine seats. They have they ha- haven't got many good second places in you know around around the country, and they're a tiny force. And you know when they, in in this parliament there were eight of them and one Greens, and no one's saying, well, why aren't the Greens breaking through? You know, it's it, they were just cut mm. down so low yep. that uh, you know if they were to get eighteen seats, that would be that would be a huge achievement. Um, Fundamentally, I mean, one of the one, one, but only one of the reasons why the polls don't do well um, is that national national vote share doesn't really mean anything in a first-past-the-post system. We've got 650 local contests where the dynamics, I mean, there may be seats which are similar to each other, but broadly the dynamics are different in every seat. And you have to have the local credibility to break through. So the national vote swing doesn't really get you anywhere, even if they had it. 
Let's just um, turn back to the woman who's likely to be Prime Minister when this is all still um, uh, over and through, um, Matthew. Um, Theresa May, who you've been rude about in respect to the campaign, but you've been quite polite about her um, as a person. But um, seeing as she will, even with the caveats that Meg talks about, be in a position to implement her programme, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on whether Mayism, if we can call it that, is any sort of break with what went before, we've got people like John Gray, maybe rather excitably suggesting um, that um, Theresa May is the one who's called time on neoliberalism and uh, will uh, emerge as, a, as, as someone who's really broken the consensus of the last 30, 40 years. Could you imagine that? Uh, I, I can imagine I can imagine her trying. I think Mayism is really Nick Timothyism in, in some ways, and I, 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 I quite like some of it. I, I, I like the idea of the Conservative Party looking beyond the leafy lanes and, 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 and looking at the, the semis in the East Midlands and all that, that kind of thing. But and I, I, found, I thought the manifesto was bits on that was re- really beautifully written. But there comes a point when you pass uh, rhetoric and, and, and you have to match the rhetoric with action and the government is going to be running out of money. Governments have always run out of money. It's not going to be easy. I don't think the economy is likely to be um, to be booming in the in the next year or two. And so what she can actually do for Nick Timothyism or Chamberlainism, I I, I, I I rather doubt. I'm sure she wants to. Let's bring in some questions because I bet there's a lot this close to polling day. Um for reasons of making it easy to move a mic around, I'm going to take the cluster of three here um, at the front first. If Nick is right and Labour gets 34% of the vote, does it surprise you in a country like this that 34% of the electorate vote for a hard-left party where the Chancellor is an admitted communist and the Home Secretary is hard-left? Do you think this is representative of what the country is? Thank you for that one. Let's just keep going so we can get a few if we if we take these three at once. Yeah, uh, mine's about Theresa May. Um, like everybody else, I suspect, I, I thought she was going to run a, a good, competent campaign. Um, I'm wondering why she's made such a hash of it. Why do you think she's been so bad? Mm. Yep. I'd go back to the Liberal Democrats. Is is it not very simple, the answer to why they haven't done well, apart from all of the other points you've made, and it's just too soon for them? We mm. haven't had the pain of Brexit, so they've got nothing to campaign on. And if I may, just one quick question on Theresa May as well. You've been very polite about her and how competent she is, Matthew, but people who followed her in the Home Office would be much less polite. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, let's... Um, should we go first on, on Labour and Nick, Nick first, and then anyone else wants to get stuck well, in? I do find it shocking, actually. Partly because people who can appear on Iranian state TV, uh, leader of the Labour Party, can appear on Iranian propaganda channels. And on the one hand in Britain say, you know, I'm all for gay rights, I'm all for equality, look at these evil bigoted Tories, and then uh, appear without any kind of uh, condemnation or speaking out for a theocracy, really. But but there you go. Lots lots of these things that people are digging up are really from when you know people like me and Matthew were young. 
you really you have to know the history of of the IRA campaign to know that it's all a lie for Corbyn to say I was always on the side of peace. You know, you have to you you, you and if, if if you're under forty, why should you care? You know, why should that matter to you? There's lots of other things that matter to you more. So, so there you go. I find it shocking. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're young, well, there is peace in Ireland of, of a sort. And, you know, he was talking to the IRA. Well, so did John Major, so did Tony Blair. You know what I mean? It's sort of, this is asking people from the 21st century to, to, to refight and understand the battles of the 20th. But in, in a way, Nick, I, I think your detestation of, Jeremy Corbyn um, and the detestation of much of the Labour Party for Jeremy Corbyn greatly exceeds uh, any feelings of antipathy that, that Conservatives may have. I think your detestation of him is slightly clouding what what I think would be the right answer to this gentleman's question, which is I don't think 34% of of, of Britain are, are communists or very left-wing, but I think about 18% of Britain really do accept that government should be in control of the commanding heights of the economy. They don't want uh, competition between two good schools. They just want one good school. They don't want competition between two hospitals. They just want one good hospital. They, they do b- believe that, because they don't remember, that British Railways um, was better than, than what we have now. And they do believe in renationalisation. And the Conservative Party, for all its electoral success and for all its executive uh, success in in um, liberalising the market and moving it away from a mixed economy to a a, a, a a more capitalist economy has never really, I don't think, broken through to explain or educate the public in in the ideological basis of conservatism, which I think still has a very weak purchase on the British imagination. But in the, the, there's also the the basic fact that, of course. Already been emphasised. We, we don't have a presidential system. We have a parliamentary system, which is based on 650 local choices, and local Labour MPs are trying mostly to fight on their records. A lot of them had distanced themselves in the early stages of the campaign from Corbyn, weren't putting them on their leaflets and so on. And actually, and and some of them um, were explicitly fighting for a strong opposition, not a Labour government. And actually, the events of the last couple of weeks, some of them, I think, are finding uncomfortable and deeply unhelpful uh, because. The prospect of a Corbyn um, of a of a Corbyn government may actually drive some of their voters away that they were trying to convince could vote for them as a local member without a risk of there being a Corbyn government. So it's tremendously complicated and conflicted for the Labour Party. But isn't there? There's an awful lot of political presumption. Obviously, goes into defining what an extremist is, and sometimes things change, times move on, and what looks extreme at one point doesn't look so extreme anymore and the reason Jeremy Corbyn is where he is I'd suggest is first of all because the mainstream said it knew what he was doing with the economy and then Lehman Brothers fell down and people are still paying the price for that and secondly they said they knew what they were doing with foreign policy and have left the Middle East in flames and so I think we've got to be I mean that's the reason why the mainstream of the Labour Party was unable to beat Jeremy Corbyn isn't it and until it reflects on that um uh, you know, it's got some soul searching to do as well, Nick. Yeah, I mean that's true. Someone was talking about neoliberalism. I heard of neoliberalism. I'm not quite sure what it is, but the, the idea that neoliberalism is being challenged now by Corbyn. I mean, neoliberalism collapsed in 2008. I mean, that way of running society crashed with Lehman Brothers. 
our, our difficulty since then is 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 uh, paraphrase Antonio Gramsci: the old is dead, but the new cannot be born. You know, and in that interregnum, many strange beasts appear. We do, we don't know what we're heading towards. So, partly to agree with Matthew, yes, of course, of course, there are, there are many people who who if if you're presented with a candidate, I, I don't think actually uh, if you run an economic populist left-wing populist campaign that was also patriotic um you could you, you could genuinely have a chance in britain it is it is it is a lack of patriotism you know the willingness to uh to inside with britain's enemies that, that, that is holding corbyn back if you had a if i'm not certain it would win an election but an economic an economic populist campaign says the systems failed the systems let us down uh, Matthew talks about about us not being educated in the free market. We think we've been educated all too well, thank you very much. Um, but was quite clearly against radical Islam. Was quite clearly against terrorism, and no one had any doubt about that. Uh, I don't think you could guarantee it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't do rather well now. Can I come back to something that the woman said here about the Liberal Democrats? Because mm. just it ties up to ties up to this. I think that the 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 basic fact that. It's too soon for the Liberal Democrats to make their comeback, um, having just having been in coalition not so very long ago. I was going to link it up to a point about the Labour Party, which helps to explain why the Labour Party is where it is. That I thought you could say the same thing about Ed Miliband in 2015. I didn't think he really got a fair kind of consideration for his leadership because he was he was punished for not winning an election um, after Labour had done three terms and there'd been one term of a different kind of government for not winning for Labour after they'd been out of power for five years. He was heavily criticised, but it was too soon. It was too soon for Labour to come back into power in 2015. It would have been remarkable if they'd managed to, especially after a period when politics had been dominated by not the relationship between the opposition and the government, but the relationship between the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives in government. Labour hadn't even had much of a showing um, in the media. And yet there was a kind of kickback against, against Miliband and that helps to explain how we got to Corbyn. I think, I think the expectations on the Labour side were too high. And that was also perhaps partly down to the polls before the last election because until fairly soon before the election, it was presumed that Labour wasn't going to win. And then the Labour side got terribly excited because the polls were showing that maybe they would be the largest party. And that was a terrible... Um, a, a terrible letdown for them. Yeah. Same thing's happening now. And I'm not quite sure what political consequences would be, but people on the left have generally got their tails mm. up and they're looking at these polls from uh, YouGov and Servation and saying, well, crikey, if not, we're going to be in power. There could be some SNP coalition. And if that doesn't happen, I, I think it's highly unlikely. Again, there will be... There'll be it's going to feel like a terrible blow yeah. when actually it but, was never likely in the first place. Yeah, but unlike in 2015, of course, when Labour was actually pretty... United uh, going into the election. Mm. Now it's so divided that each side will be able to uh, blame the other, and the bloodletting will just just go on, won't it? If if there is disappointment on the point about is it too soon on 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 Brexit? I think that the kind of um, wiser of the Brexit campaigners, anti Brexit campaigners, are, are very alert to that and um, have put a lot of emphasis therefore on this business about the court case that's going through in Ireland to try and establish that Brexit is what they call revocable, unilaterally revocable. Article in other words, 50. government yeah. can just decide that it's um, uh, that Article 50 could be, sorry, we don't want it after all. But as long as it's not been ruled against, um, that there might be an opportunity for the government to change its mind. But the point is that with this election, I think that gets much, much more difficult. 
Um, Matthew, could I just um, bring you in on, on, on May again with the question, yes. you know, was it such a surprise? Why, why has she been so bad? And were there clues in her time at the Home Office? I don't know if there are clues at her time at the Home Office. There's evidently someone in the audience who has more direct experience of that than me, and I don't know. Um, I wouldn't say that she was a, a good departmental minister. I just thought she handled the politics of her position in, in the cabinet extremely shrewdly and um, ended up coming out on top as she has. But with what damage that was done to home affairs, I, I, I don't know. Why has it gone so badly? Because the Conservative Party decided to build a personality cult out of um, a personality who was not really cultable in, 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 in that sense, and it just didn't work. And I, 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 I also think that the, the, the comms dweebs got, got hold of the Conservative Party and told it that it just had to repeat ad nauseam this strong and stable message. And you, we all had those slightly sniggering columns from colleagues, press colleagues, uh, saying, you know, you may be bored with strong and stable. In that case, that's a sign that it's working because it's supposed to be boring, mm-hmm. but it is being dinned into your silly little heads. And anyway, you aren't the audience. The audience are the hoi polloi out there um, who uh, re- respond as they might respond to soap powder advertising. If you say something often enough, they'll believe it. Well, I think those dweebs were wrong. And I think the hoi polloi out there didn't like hearing strong and stable just repeated over and over again and thought their intelligence was being insulted. I think just to move on very briefly that, that Mrs. May is is now on probation, and that, that'll be a funny thing to say for an incoming prime minister who comes in with a much bigger majority than she had before, but she need, needs to be very careful this year, because I think if she stumbles badly once more, uh, the Conservative Party, which I think I still know from being part of it and having been an MP in it, the Conservative Party is absolutely merciless, and she has lost the sort of predominance, the hegemony that she she had and like, like virginity hegemony once lost is very hard to regain it, it has not only a culture but also a mechanism for getting rid of its leader in a way yes. that the labor party doesn't because mm. <laughs> i guess quite one thing out which just marks the change that, that matthew was talking about i mean it's, i've had extraordinary it's barely discussed now at all that in the early weeks of the campaign when we still had the cult of uh, Saint Teresa, uh, she wouldn't be a saint, would she be more, more queen uh, or empress? She, she appeared to say her chancellor was fired. He, he refused to say, you know, I was going to give him a job. What an extraordinary thing for a prime minister to, um, to effectively announce, give redundancy notice, not sack her chancellor in, in, in an election campaign. And, and, but such is the bias towards power. That's a real bias in journalism, I think. You know, there are... There are um, there are uh, you know, left-wing biased newspapers and right-wing biased newspapers, and there are more right-wing biased newspapers than left-wing ones, and people on the left always complain that. But the real bias in, in commentary is towards power, and people seem unchallengeable. They can do, they can do the most extraordinary things, like just say to the Chancellor Exchequer, he's fired in the middle of an election campaign, and no one even blinks. They just sniggle and say, well, actually, Philip Hammond. <laughs> uh, look at him, poor, pathetic figure. But as soon as the power drains from you, you suddenly got, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen on June the 9th? Is Philip Hammond going to stomp back into the Treasury? Apparently he was only fired for trying to tell the truth about some of the economic concerns of Brexit. Um, let's take a, a few more um, questions. Gosh, we've got lots here. I'm going to take um, one at the front, one just behind there, and then on the end there as well, please. 
none of us have mentioned the SNP. I suspect they'll still be the third largest party, but are they not now in decline? They've been in power for 10 years, people are bringing to the fault, and Ruth Davidson has, uh, has scored quite a few points. My question is uh, mostly for our former MP uh, here. Uh, you mentioned about how uh, Ms. May is uh, right now is in, in kind of a crisis, but leadership of the Conservative Party went under the crisis after Cameron went out. And basically, Ms. May got the job because no one else had the guts to stay in the uh, record. Uh, who's going to challenge her among this not very interesting people? <laughs> See, and... Uh, Oh, God. And <laughs> one thing more. Uh, someone make a comment about this Australian character, Lyndon Crosby, who's apparently running Miss May. Mm. Uh, why is he so important? Why would taking him seriously? And why has he screwed up this campaign? <laughs> Great. Thanks. And at the end, I think there, yeah. I wanted to ask a more historical context question. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on whether the, the tone of politics have changed. I'm thinking particularly of uh, the Labour Party's inability to deal with anti-Semitism within its ranks. Um, some of the comments that Amber Rudd and Theresa May made at the Conservative conference about uh, um, immigrants and um, citizens of the world. Um, just, Do you think that there has been a, a general lowering of the tone or increase in, in hate speech, or, or is that just um, because where we sit now rather than actually there's no change over history? Shall we start with the SNP just because there isn't British politics anymore, is there? There is Scottish politics and then English and Welsh politics make the, the difference. It's certainly worth a, a different comment. Yeah, well, there's clearly a there's a there's a rather different election campaign going on in in Scotland, isn't there? And actually, Ruth Davidson is 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 has distanced herself from Theresa May on some of these more controversial policies, and she's a bit of a star, Ruth Davidson, isn't she? I mean, the basic fact is there's there's nowhere in parliamentary terms for the SNP to go but down. Um, they couldn't win any more. Well, they could, you know, they could win three more, but they're not going to. They're going to go down. So it's hard to see. Well, there's going to be a fight, isn't there, about the interpretation of the result in Scotland as to whether they've had a good election or not. Mm. But there are going to be gains. Um, there are going to be conservative gains. Maybe there will even be Labour gains or Liberal Democrat gains. And there's going to be conservative gains in Wales as well. So one of the things that, we, that could be quite healthy, I think, coming out of this election is if our party politics is less divided along territorial lines than it has been for the last, I don't know, 15, 20, even maybe more years. If the Conservatives had more representation in Wales and in Scotland, we might begin to feel a bit more like a united country because the parties would um, be looking out for all parts of the UK and having to think about the Scottish dimension and the Welsh dimension on and the Conservative side. And yet we've, we need a bit of a caveat here because there's a new poll in Scotland suggesting Labour's picking back up. But if the Tories come back, Nick, as unambiguously the second party in Scotland with Labour, a real kind of gadfly that could be ignored. That means if there is a, a new referendum, um, it's um, a Tory-led version of Better Together against the SNP. And whatever it feels like when you've got a, a few new unionist MPs um, on June the 9th, the dynamics of that could be quite tricky, couldn't they? I agree with the gentleman's assessment. I mean, obviously the SNP peaked, uh, and like all government's been in power for a long time it's 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 now in decline and its problem is is the problem nationalist parties have in you know 
decolonization de- de- you know, they're there for independence and then then what then then what do they do and you can't keep focusing the subject in scotland on the awful english we must have independence when you're running the police the schools the hospitals and you know, not very well frankly um but i don't yeah and i i'm sure they won't obviously meg's right about how they can form elections i mean it won't it won't go away in some ways the smp a period of Opposition, a period of not being in power, would strengthen the nationalist cause because they could, they could, they could get their their uh, their energy back. And Tom is is of course right. One one of the most sort of uh, uh, forked tongues expressions in uh, political expressions you've heard the past few weeks is um, is Nicola Sturgeon saying she wants to work together with Labour to prevent her <laughs> to prevent her Conservative government. She absolutely wants Conservative government. And if we are going into, I don't know if we are. I think politics is far more fluid now than it was when that first we had Thatcher for 18 years and then New Labour for 13 years. I think it's far more fluid. But we are going to on these long periods of Conservative dominance, which have dominated British history since the 1880s. That suits the SNP. It does suit it. However, however I mean, Ruth Davidson's a fantastic politician, but Scottish Conservatism is not going to keep throwing people like her up and she's probably going to come to Westminster. And you know, what the SNP want above all is to say, we are Scottish nationalists fighting Tory England. Now, in the past, they could have said, Tories could have said, yes, but we're not Tory England, we're Tory Britain. And we're not, don't have your narrow-mindedness. But now if you look at the dominant stream on the right, it is, it is a nationalist right as well. So you have Scottish nationalism versus, versus is it British nationalism or English nationalism? You know, the, way thing, the, the, the way things are working out. Ruth Davidson is my dream leader of the Conservative Party, but it's a bit early for her and she's got uh, Scottish issues to resolve and lay to rest <laughs> first. I, I, I think on the question of um, Linton Crosby, um, he's only the hired help. And uh, your your campaign manager is or should be only the hired help. You do need a campaign manager. I've just been writing for another magazine uh, about this. But politicians are useless managers. Uh, they can't organise anything. That That isn't why they went into politics. And so campaigns that don't have a proper professional campaign manager usually disintegrate. And Linton's uh, reputation is for banging heads together, gathering everybody together in the office in the morning and saying, this is the message, this is what we're going to do today. And he's admired for that. But what what he can't do is be the product. And if you allow your campaign manager to be more than a salesman, but also to design the product, then I think you're in trouble. And I think that's your fault and not the campaign manager's. Um, we've got to stop fairly soon, but let's just have a quick word on the on the tone of politics, um, which was uh, another of those questions there. Or if you want to get into it, the question about where is uh, new leadership going to come from? You could say in either party, but the question was specifically about the Tories. So on either of those two, a, a final word. First of all, Meg, we'll go across. Well, I guess the I mean this is a really obvious point, but the tone of politics has maybe altered in line with the tone of national debate in general, which is connected to the question of social media and just how much nastiness there is out there on the sort of instant click and and, and nasty comments, which connects to a point that is quite striking to me in this in this election that actually a lot of us aren't seeing a lot of the election campaign because it's going on on social media in a very targeted way 
we're not getting to see the messages that the parties are putting out, which actually disturbs me quite a lot, because I would like to know what all of the parties are saying to their putative supporters. If they're putting out videos um, on Facebook and so on, I would like to have some transparency whereby if I want to, I can go and have a look at what those videos are. But we, we don't really know what's going on out there and we don't know how much it's feeding the nastiness in the social media world because it's completely unregulated. And I, I do think that's something we might need to look at. Um, Nick. Uh, well, it's very hard to look at social media and remain an optimist about human nature, mm. uh, I have to say, uh, or, or about public discourse in your country. On the other hand, I don't think... Uh, human nature changes very much, uh, nor do I think if you would be able to sit in the pubs of Britain in election campaigns in 1970 or 1979 or even 1997, you would have necessarily heard a more elevated discourse. I think the difficulty is is, is that the Corson discourse has become the national discourse. People don't feel the need to, if you like, on put on their Sunday best, to use a rather old-fashioned, put on their Sunday best when they talk to talk politics to appear perhaps a bit better than they are, a bit more courteous than they are, a bit more witty, or if, they, if they're going to be rude, be funny with it. And um, uh, uh, I can't say I like it very much, and I can't say I see it getting any better either. Um, and uh, Matthew, where's the leadership going to come from and, and what's, what's up with the tone? Yeah, to answer that that question, uh, if not if not Theresa May, who I'm sure it will be Theresa May for a little while yet. I don't think there's going to be any immediate challenge, uh, and she may be here for a few years more. But I don't think anybody supposes she was wanting to fight the 2022 election. So she is already a leader who's stumbled badly in her last election campaign and is not going to be uh, running again in five years' time. So the talk will start quite quickly. Uh, and the grumbles will start quite quickly, and they may come to nothing for quite some time. But in the end, they will come to a head. And as to who it will be, well, when Ted Heath began to began to struggle, and it became evident that he he was not just going to be crowned again leader of the Conservative Party, it was not obvious who was going to replace him. But it was likely to be uh, Willie Whitelaw or somebody like that. It wasn't. It was someone no one had ever heard of when uh, John Major decided to uh, go. It wasn't clear who was going to succeed him. <laughs> it turned out to be William Hague and then Ian Duncan Smith. Uh, when um, when it, David Cameron had to resign, no one has supposed, I think, that, that Theresa May was, was, was going to inherit the leadership. So until you have a vacuum in a political party, I don't think you have the candidates coming forward and I don't think you necessarily know who's going to make an impressive case. So what must come first is the hour, then the man or woman will come after that and it may not come for quite some time. Two more questions I think. Hiya, thank you very much for all of your thoughts um, tonight. Um, I'm genuinely quite confused though still about this election in that um, I... uh, I just have a question about hope and leadership and I, I, I'm not going to profess to have ever been a Tory voter, I'm not um, and I won't say what else I vote but um, I'm interested to know I, from what I can see in their manifesto and their record to date there isn't anything 
in the same way that Trump, you know, arguably presented hope, Macron recently did the same, and Obama, it's all about hope. And we're not living in a world anymore that's particularly sane. And, but, you know, services are very, very much underfunded. And we're, you know, on our knees, really, in terms of the NHS, where, and the majority of this country want the NHS. So what is it about the Tories right now that are presenting an argument to say that the the majority of this country are going to vote for? Because actually, if anything, I would say Corbyn's uh, manifesto has got far more hope and far more a far more wonderful vision of what this country could be than anything I've seen come out of the Tories. Hi there. It seems that there are two types of Labour voters who really don't like Jeremy Corbyn. And the first type are the ones who thought that he couldn't win. And the second ones are those opposed to him morally. Uh, as a journalist for the Jewish Chronicle, I see a lot of the latter type of people. Um, when Corbyn doesn't win this election, but still does well enough to hang on, we've already seen the first group, the ones who thought that he couldn't do very well, have already started to reconcile with him. But what do you think that group of people who are morally opposed to a lot of what he stands for, what what will they do? Because if he doesn't go then this is the Labour Party for the foreseeable future. Brilliant. Thank you um, very much. Let's wrap those together then. And this time we'll go across the panel the other way and then that really will be that. Um, so, Matthew, um, like maybe Labour's done better than the Conservatives in the campaign from a worse starting place because it had some hope in what it had to offer um, uh, is, is the first question. And I think the second one is getting at um, the Liberal Democrats can't win... Labour can't win and or has got a lot of people who don't like Jeremy Corbyn, does that mean there might be room for a new party? Well, very, very briefly on both, uh, I, I think the, the question that people need hope and where is the hope coming from, if we do get a substantial Conservative win, the answer to that is that people evidently don't need hope and perhaps what people need is, is reassurance. Uh, perhaps people are afraid and perhaps people feel resentful. And the Conservative Party is quite good, I think, at capitalising on people's resentments. Uh, it's quite good at capitalising on people's insecurities. Mm. And um, I happen to think as a Conservative that insecurity is a valid feeling and that a politician who tries to address insecurity is doing something valid in, in politics. But I, 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 I would um, counsel uh, caution... Uh, in in uh, exaggerating the possibilities of hope uh, in in a, in a general election uh, on 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 the question of what we do if we just get Jeremy Corbyn uh, leading the Labour Party for uh, the foreseeable future, I don't know. I think uh, I think as as Nick said, the the old is dying and the new is struggling to be born, and I think we are waiting for a realignment of. British politics, rather like the, the map of Africa, which was uh, determined along colonial lines rather than along the lines of the, the people and the language groups who are actually there. I think our map of politics has been designed along lines that have long dissolved or ought to dissolve. And we, we, we do need a, a different constellation of parties. But I don't think we're on the brink of that yet. Mm. Thank you, Matthew, very much. Nick? If I could end on a hopeless thought, the, the map of Africa designed on colonial lines by uh, 
colonial administrators took no no notice of where people's languages or tribes or whatever is actually still there, uh, as far as I can see, apart from the border between Morocco and uh, and South Sahara. Labour MP, I know, a good friend of mine who's fighting uh, in in a working-class seat, uh, just put it to me like this. She said, you know, an awful lot of people want to vote Labour, but we just keep giving them reasons not to do it. So, you know, if you, if, if, if you want an alternative, it used to be said of women, it used to be said of women, if you, want to be as, if you want the same job as a man, you've got to be twice as good. Um, uh, if if, lab, if Labour wants to become a party of government, it has to massively reassure people that it won't spend money like a sailor on shore leave, first of all. Uh, and two, it has got to... It has got to be patriotic. It absolutely has to be patriotic. Labour earned that that reputation as an anti-fascist party in in the wartime coalition. And uh, the danger for lots lots of people, for heaven knows, good reason, uh, after Afghanistan, Iraq and the wars and the bombings since 9-11, have very good reason for saying, well, why should we go along with all this claptrap about defending a country and the West and national interest? God help you. I, well, I say, we'll find out on Friday. I think if you're a party of the left and you're not solid on that, um, then the Tories, who, as Matthew said, are very good at supporting people's fears, are also very good at supporting the most basic fear of all, that uh, you let in a government, it will somehow betray you, it will expose you to danger, either from criminals abroad, criminals at home or enemies abroad. And... I think we'll see how Labour does on Friday. I think those two lessons can have to be relearned. Um, a, a word on a new party, or God, it's hellishly, it's hellishly difficult. Um, but if if that's it, if we are now set in in Matthew's map of Africa, uh, perhaps some of the tribes will try and break out. <laughs> Thank you very much. And finally, um, Meg, a last word on on, on those two. Well, on the questions. on the new party, I mean, as I, 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 I mentioned this before, and I said even then it's a boring point, so maybe it's even more boring to, to make it again. But the electoral system makes it very, very difficult for new parties to break through. That's one of the features of our system. If you have thin support spread out all over the UK, you're quite capable of getting no MPs elected at all. So to make a breakthrough is very difficult. I mean, you would hope perhaps that the Greens would have made more than a breakthrough. It was quite a major achievement to get one MP and they haven't managed to break through beyond one MP. So there are, I mean, there are, there are many strong reasons to support our electoral system as well. You know, the strong local links that are the key to British politics are one of the benefits of the system that we have, I think, in terms of MPs being in touch with their constituents. But at the same time, breaking through as a new party is extremely hard. On the hope question, I think I would say... Um, we don't have much of a tradition, really, in the UK of of elections being fought on ideas, on policy. They used to be fought on tribal loyalties. Those tribal loyalties have dissolved. In more recent years, they've been they've been fought on competence to a large extent, on who who's going to be the best manager. Um, and one of the difficulties, I think, is that that was that was the. That was the ticket that Theresa May was running on, the competence ticket, and the, then the, what she wants to project as the incompetence of the other side. And if you don't run a very competent campaign, you're in trouble, if that's your message. 
And there we are. That's the, the, the final note, 36 hours before the um, voting um, begins. We'll see how that um, ends up um, uh, on Friday. Um, so um, thank you very much indeed to Matthew Paris, to Nick Cohen and to Meg Russell for coming along and sharing their thoughts. Thank you very much um, uh, indeed to all of you for um, giving up your time and, and, and coming to here and chipping in with all those questions. Thanks very much indeed for coming. And if you're listening at home, thanks very much for listening there as well. 